Africa Climate Podcast. Hello, welcome to another edition of the Africa Climate Podcast, a podcast dedicated to bridging the climate and environmental reporting gaps in Africa. I'm your host, Sophie Mbogwa. Today, we are in Zambia. I'm joined by Johnston Chikwanda talking about energy in Zambia and Africa. But before then, I'm super excited to announce that we have a new website. Yes! www.africaclimatenews.com Please check us out, Africa Climate News, and do not forget to subscribe. Chikwanda, thank you so much for joining us. Please introduce yourself to our audience. My name is uh, Johnston Chikwanda. I am uh, an engineer and um, an expert in the energy uh, sector in Zambia, having worked for more than 20 years in the industry, both within Zambia and uh, outside the country. I'm very, very passionate about uh, this um, uh, industry and uh, the future of the African Union towards uh, Vision 2063 in terms of alleviating the energy poverty. Thank you so much. Now, the Southern Africa Development Community's Center for Renewable Energy and Energy Efficiency commended Zambia as one of the few countries in the Southern African region that has significantly achieved energy efficiency through the energy-saving lightning measures. What is this that makes it so one of the countries that has achieved significantly efficiency? Yeah, uh, thank you so much, uh, Sophie. Basically, Zambia's energy sector is built around its arbitrage. And the arbitrage we have is a massive water bodies. Mm-hmm. And uh, so our energy, about 81% now, it used to be over 90%, but it has come down to about 81%, is the hydro power generation. And the hydro is, the, is clean energy. So we started now to diversify the energy mix after bearing the brunt of um, the effects of climate variability and change, which at one time in 2015 took away more than 50% of our generation capacity because of uh, hydrological challenges um, in the corridors where we have, where, which, which hosts our major generation capacity. So from that time, we decided to venture into um, thermal energy as well as a way of diversifying and managing the the risks. And uh, we also decided to pass a law in the country which outlaws the importation or manufacturing of um, filament light bulbs. Because filament light bulbs, they consume a lot of um, Power. We have one bulb at 60 watts, another one at 100 watts, so on and so forth. And um, when we did that, we then shifted the country to an energy-saving platform and started saving more than 200 megawatts just by shifting people from energy inefficient to energy-saving and efficient lighting system. So what we also did was to escalate the energy sector reforms to create an enabling environment that introduces the efficiencies that allows for wider participation of the private sector 
uh, especially on the renewable energy energy side. So we had to repeal the Electricity Act of 1995, 2003, it was amended, but then in 2019 we had to completely do away with it and created a new one which responds to the current demands, talking to the renewable energy and introducing definitions that are the order of the day and the and just to spur the efficiencies that we are supposed to be seeing. And also the regulatory space from the Energy Regulation Act, we also dealt with, with that significantly. And the plethora of a lot of other general regulations through a statutory instrument. Mm -hmm. So that has helped us to deal with the bottlenecks that were hindering our shift to a better pedestal in terms of energy efficiencies. Yes, Africa is trapped in what we call the energy trilemma because on one side they've got very old and aging equipment and uh, then here environmentally friendly power stations and they're all tariff. But uh, for Zambia, we've also partly trapped because our tariffs are low. But uh, essentially, we've seen a lot of improvements and investment to improve the, the efficiencies. And that particular institute you're talking about, the coordinating committee, the Southern African, yes, indeed, they commended Zambia and uh, even adopted the, a project in Southern province at the time that I was uh, serving as a chairperson of the Rural Electrification Authority board. They wanted to create a model of um, a renewable energy off-grid system for a particular uh, village. Great. Thank you so much for that. When you're speaking about efficiency, countries like Kenya loses about 20% of the energy the country produces because of poor networks when it comes to distribution. I'm wondering how is it in Zambia when it comes to like that energy efficiency, not just in production, mm -hmm. but in distribution as well? Because mm -hmm. you talked about saving, the efficiency in terms of saving. But what mm -hmm. about the efficiency in terms of the infrastructure uh, networks mm -hmm. that distributes mm -hmm. energy? Yeah. Well, definitely, we've also have uh, the, our own share of um, the challenges from the backbone of the infrastructure. The backbone, you know, was um, built uh, quite a long time ago, especially the one which comes from Kariba. And uh, we have been generating much of the power from the southern circuit of the country and then evacuating it into to the northern part of the country, coming towards Lusaka and into the Copper Belt and all these areas. Uh, that is uh, transporting electricity by hundreds and hundreds of, of kilometers, almost a thousand. So we've been losing also quite a lot, you know, transmission losses and distribution losses. Mm -hmm. uh, but we have also had to build the other power plants which have come up in other areas, which have minimized on that. And then also the regulator, the regulator has got a performance charter for the National Power Utility, ZESCO. And the one of the KPIs on which they, they audit the power utility is a KPI on controlling distribution and transmission losses, those that are non-technical. Because there are others that you, you are, there is nothing you can do about it. As long as you are transporting power, you are going to lose something. But uh, there are also other losses that we note when they begin to go above 5% and that, 
then you can tell that no, 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 this is now going outside the outside the best practice benchmarks, meaning that we are losing power in the various uh, leakages because of aging infrastructure, poor energy audits, and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. So there has been also quite a heavy investment in the network itself, and uh, distribution lines and um, replacement of aging equipment. There has been considerable capex around that. Not that we are at a level where we are supposed to be, but uh, there has been quite considerable upgrades to the network around the major hubs, which has helped both the national power utility company to reduce its distribution network. While on the copper belt, where we have a high consumption of power, because that's where the mines are, yeah. the most active player there is Copper Belt Energy Corporation, which is privately owned. And it has done a fantastic job in terms of maintaining its network as a private company. They, they have contributed significantly to ensuring that our transmission and distribution non-technical losses are managed relatively efficiently. Right. And, and you find that basically now that's a private sector. Why is it so difficult for the government? Because these are energy infrastructure that were built very long time ago. So difficult for the government to invest in repairing or man maintaining these mm. old infrastructures or even building new infrastructures over time. Yeah, well, that's uh, a good observation. Uh, we've been making a lot of noise and um, engagements personally have um, tried to probe to be quantifying because we already know for instance that if you are losing 10 percent you are losing eight percent we are no longer interested in just being told the percentages what we want is what does that translate to in terms of electricity mm. megawatt hours what does mm. that translate to so that we are able to put a costing and with that language, and the moment you begin to go into that, it's uh, now uh, traversing into space that uh, makes uh, some stakeholders very, very uncomfortable. Because that when you begin now to talk of the money, then you, you, you cast it over a long period of time. You will see that Zambia also has lost uh, perhaps uh, revenue running into billions of US dollars due to poor infrastructure because of these uh, non-technical transmission and distribution losses. And uh, I would like to encourage but uh, we come face to face and begin to talk real figures instead of just hiding behind the percentages. Because when we say 2% or 5% loss, you know, to an ordinary person, it might look like it's insignificant. But when yeah. you put it into money terms, that is uh, a lot of power. Generally, losses are, which are non-technical are everywhere. In South Africa, and there also there are a lot of them and they have jailed. A lot of people have been tempering and also stealing with the pilferages of electricity. I saw also uh, a report from an authority you know, in the United States that the United States, the amount of non-technical losses that it suffers it runs in actually billions of United States of dollars uh, per year, non-technical. And uh, the same in, uh, in the European Union as well, in Ireland there, uh, there has been a lot of uh, theft of uh, power 
And uh, so it's not just the aging, but we've also got uh, illegal connections, which, uh, which contribute to these uh, distribution losses, which you cannot uh, really pinpoint at what point it is taking place. There is uh, a lot of interference on the, on the network. So you lose power due to the aging infrastructure, but you also lose power due to, to, to theft. And um, governments are expected to invest in smart meters. Like uh, that is one of the projects uh, that is on the cars in Zambia. We start uh, investing in, in, in smart meters now. Generally, almost all households uh, are now on prepaid meters. That has also helped to manage the, the efficiencies. But uh, what we need is a smart grid. A smart grid that is able to help you detect where you are losing power so that you are able to pinpoint those areas. In the absence of a smart grid, it is very difficult to manage uh, that. Governments are expected to invest in these uh, you know, uh, replacement of the infrastructure. It is expensive, though. but uh, you also realize that uh, the tariffs the tariffs are very low, and the, generally their subsidies in place. The tariffs are not cost-reflective. So these uh, power utilities, even the one in Zambia and elsewhere, you find they op they operate at a, at a loss and they are technically bankrupt. A lot of African power utilities, including the Zambian one, although now there are efforts to produce reforms, financial and the structural reforms, as was the highlighted by the Republican president when he addressed Parliament that this is what he wants to do uh, because the utility is technically, technically bankrupt. Mm. And when it's technically bankrupt, it becomes very difficult to invest in, in, in new uh, you know, infrastructure at the pace that you want to, you want to do. Um, you mentioned earlier on when we started that Zambia diversified into thermal because of climate impacts. You have 81% of energy that is generated through hydro and hydro basically it's use of water. And one of the things I noticed is that you had some quite some deficit in 2020. Um, I was listening to your your Minister of, of Energy speaking about 2020, how Zambia experienced power deficit of about 810 megawatts due to reduced rainfall during the 2019 and 2020 rainfall season. I think first we could talk about how climate change over the years, how has it affected energy generation in Zambia? The impact of climate change on Zambia's energy topography can never be underestimated. First and foremost, Zambia lies within a region which experiences a fair amount of rainfall, especially you know, in the northern parts of the country. We have got very, very good rainfall. And most of our rivers, like the Zambezi River, the Kafue River, the upstreams, they tap their water from, from the northern parts of the country, and then they come down. Let's see why we built our power plants on the downstream. So generally, we have had a good rainfall historically. Uh, however, with the advent of climate variability, uh, with climate change, we started noticing irregular patterns which were disrupting rainfall. It wouldn't come at a time we were expecting to come, or it would just, you know, below average in the southern circuit or in critical hydrological areas which are key 
for our dams. And um, we started now being hit. 2015, we lost more than 50%. That was the heaviest that we have ever lost power. And that is from that time that the country was left with no option but to go very strong in terms of diversifying the energy portfolio Mm -hmm. significantly and leaving no stone unturned, including looking at the nuclear deployment for the future. And so we passed even the nuclear policy action. Then we've never been the same. Uh, it also happened just you know 2020. We also had the problems again with um, with the, with the, our hydrological system, and which led to non-availability of at least 800 megawatts. Our 800 megawatts is is a lot of power. We are going to do load shedding by up to 12 hours, uh, 10 hours. And each time you are now load shedding a country eight hours and more, that is not even load shedding now. That is what we call life shedding because businesses now get affected. People will go out of employment. At the, the small and the medium enterprises, they suffer the most because usually when there is the challenges with the sufficiency of energy, okay. in order to keep the overall economy working, We've noted that as a matter of strategy, the big industries like the mines, they continue to receive power. And it's the households and the small businesses that that is sacrificed. And this is where now we have people with these saloons, barbershops, butcheries in the markets, that where the, the small businesses, they get hit terribly. Yeah, so in an effort to ensure that we will never go through these kind of things, uh, we needed to do a lot of mapping for the alternatives. So we had to do the wind resource mapping with the help of cooperating partners. They helped us to do the Zambia you know, energy uh, wind resource mapping. So we know which areas in Zambia we can do wind energy. And also, we had to look at the geothermal and the solar energy as well, and coal-fired power plants. Mm-hmm. We cannot run away from from that, you know. Mm-hmm. And that is how we've been diversifying as a mitigation to the impact of climate change, which mm-hmm. has had a devastating effect on our hydrological system. And if we were to compute those 800 megawatts that were not available, and even in 2015, and we, are, we put a tariff to that and multiply them, you'll find that it may have cost a country a couple of billions of, of dollars, which yeah. was not revenue corrected. Because remember, these companies are in the business of selling electricity. So yeah. if you don't have the electricity, it's not just that you affect your customers, but you also suffer loss of revenue. Africa Climate Podcast. When we're speaking about alternatives, you mentioned coal. And internationally, the discourse has been coal should stay down. 
and especially in Africa, because then the encouragement has been, do not mind these resources, do not develop the way we as the rich nations developed, because we need to stay within the Paris Agreement, and you also you risk your resources being stranded because no one will actually be buying these resources. But I'm wondering, Zambia has relied upon on renewables for years. That is the hydro. And I'm listening at your portfolio in terms of the energy mix you're looking into, even for the future. It's geothermal, it's um, wind, it's solar, but then there's coal in the mix. Zambia has had, of course, coal for, for so long. I wonder mm-hmm. how much, when the two times it's actually gone completely unstable, to what extent did coal come in to stabilize energy, mm-hmm. ensuring that energy, there is availability of energy, especially because what I, what I noticed is that Zambia consumes a lot in terms of the domestic sector consumes about 33% of generated electricity and the mining sector consumes about 51%. So there's a lot of energy that is consumed by the you know uh, mining sector. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How much did actually coal come in in terms of coal stabilize availability mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. that energy during the time that mm-hmm. um, hydro was not stable? There would have been an apocalypse. I'm mm-hmm. telling you, the economy would have collapsed. The economy would have collapsed, and this is where I am differing with this international discourse that Mm -hmm. uh, they should do bear with the the developmental program of Africa and allow it to define its own path, even as we are, you know, part and parcel of the the global community. Uh, When you look at, for instance, countries like like Zambia, which more than 81% depends on hydro, that shows you the kind of risk that the country is sitting with because we are we are built on a on a single portfolio of 81 percent that means if something was to go wrong we see that 81 percent the economy can collapse that is not safe enough now if we are to diversify what are we going to diversify into because Renewable energies, yes, they have have come up, like your solar, but solar still has got a long way in order to provide the kind of power that is stable, that is reliable, that we are are looking at. You know how much land you are going to need to just have 1,000 megawatts of of solar and farmland and other land that you are going to sacrifice to build and to find the better location for which has got good radiation where you have at least some you know some efficiencies and then also uh, globally we haven't made significant progress with the energy storage so you find your solar is usually active during day but what about in the evening in the during the peak hours the evening so integrating intermittent sources of power which come from resources like solar to your base loads, it's also a very big technical issue because we've been told that you cannot integrate more than 10% of solar to a base load, otherwise the system can collapse. So we still have a long way to go in terms of developing battery storage so that the solar systems can also start saving as a base load. And then, you know, for situations like ours as, as a country, our maximum potential from hydro is 6,000 megawatts. 
that is on all rivers and building power plants, we can only go to a maximum of 6,000 megawatts of good rainfall. That's installed capacity. But you know, installed capacity and what is available are usually yeah. two different things. Now, our projection, because of the economic growth and the, the population and the demand, is that yeah. 20 years from now, 20, 25 years from now, we are going to be needing more than more than 10,000 megawatts. Maybe it will be around 14,000 megawatts. So in the post-dependency on hydro, where is the power going to come from? So the, the real issue now is what is lying ahead of, ahead of us. Is the solar able to give us more than 10,000 megawatts? So to answer the question, I still see thermal energy coming from coal as being very, very crucial to the industrialization of Africa in the medium and the long term. Yes, we know about that, but it's climate change. Technology has also, Sophie, improved significantly. The emissions which can be coming from those uh, coal-fired power plants can be minimized significantly. Recently, the European Union themselves, they will add that outload the gas, that gas is also produces greenhouse gases. The use of um, LNG, the use of natural gas to, mm. to produce you know, uh, electricity. They complained that uh, uh, it also contribution to you know to greenhouse gases, but they turned around and came and said, "Oh no 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 no! I think there are some power facilities which use gas, which qualify to be called renewable energies and clean energy." How that was that was the double speak because then again yes. now the Ukraine Russia happens and because they said this after the ukraine russia war happened and now europe is actually in crisis because of energy so mm -hmm. now we we've actually it's the same case we've actually seen if if you look at i was just researching recently looking into coal uh, production in in africa and and i was just you know looking into Botswana and Botswana is actually has increased in terms of production. Demand has since they they were in Ukraine. It's demand mm -hmm. increased production demand in Botswana of coal, and it's very interesting given that so the developed countries pushing Africa in terms of go renewables, and of course they have the technologies that they want to sell because look, yes, Africa invests in terms of solar and wind. Where are we buying this technology from? It's not solar that we are building in terms of what we have, materials that we have here in Africa or in Kenya or in South Africa or in Zambia. It's actually technology that African governments are actually buying from Germany, from, you mm -hmm. know, when it comes to, to batteries and, and storages, where we turning to Tesla. This climate issues that you're told move this particular direction but then again we're moving this particular direction because somebody else is dangling the carrot around us as energy experts from zambia and you've outlined it very well in terms of where you want to go but are we as africans standing our grounds and saying no this is our development trajectory this is our emissions that is actually way below four percent but then again we are going to invest as much as we are hard as his because then again it's a choice between development and keeping the emissions down. I, I feel horrible, to be honest with you. Uh, but uh, I'm also quite uh, comforted uh, with uh, what the African Union is trying to do. Uh, because uh, we are trying to 
harmonize the regulatory frameworks at regional levels uh, so that we can start heading now into the single Africa, a single electricity market for Africa. I don't think we have really put up a very strong voice and put our, our foot down. Yes, we have embraced the energy transition, which is, which is good. For instance, in Zambia, we have even created a new ministry called the Ministry of Green Economy, mm -hmm. uh, which is expected to spearhead the greening agenda for, for Zambia, and it is commendable. But what I am against myself is the rushing of the African continent on this path so that it abandons its potential to, you know, to unlock other energy and other energy sources. The energy poverty that we are sitting with on Africa of over 620 million people with no access to clean energy in the sub-Sahara Africa is a lot. It's going to need us to do everything we can to unlock different potential that we have and arbitrage to help reduce this. Otherwise, even meeting the SDG goal number seven by 2030, which calls for access to clean energy, which is affordable and sustainable, is a pipe dream because the average rural electrification for Africa is less than 4%. See, and we have got eight years. Where is the power going to come from? So if we are being told, no, you cannot touch this, you cannot touch that, we are really being put in a very awkward position. And the problem also is that you find the capital is controlled by the Western yeah. world. That's why you are going to borrow money to build your power plants. And the moment they hear that you want to do a coal-fired power plant, you, it might not be easy. But fortunately, uh, we also have got you know, other alternatives, like from the BRICS region, uh, from China, they are able to support that kind of, 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 of investment. So my take is that in Africa needs to unite. Africa needs to speak with one voice and say that, yes, we embrace the energy transition. Uh, we support the path to renewable energy, but we also understand that due to our unique situation, our dare position in terms of energy poverty, we also need to develop other, other, other forms of energy, which include coal itself, beneficiating mm -hmm. it uh, with a view, uh, well, of course, within uh, reduced limits. Because the technology which has come now, it doesn't produce as much greenhouse gases as the one that as the one that was there, uh, you know, previously. And it is also not good when other countries are still using the same uh, kind of you know systems, and then you know, they are they are stopping you. Why haven't they migrated themselves? Hmm. Now, Chikwanda, Africa keeps looking to the West, and that's why now the West they would tell us what to do, because then if you come to my house. You observe my rules. If I say no shoes from this point, no shoes. If I say everybody sleeps at this particular time, everybody sleeps at that particular time and wakes at the time, I say because it's my house. My house, my rules. So Africa over and over and over again, it's not that we do not have resources from back at home and it's not that we don't have budgets from back at home. Look at Kenya right now. We are going into an election in less than three weeks to go the resources are there for 
political interest and reso- mm-hmm. you know, to appoint someone every five years or four years. But mm-hmm. when it comes to building our own infrastructure, when it comes to actually our development, we keep going, looking to the West. And that's the reason why the West, mm-hmm. they would have mm-hmm. that, you know, to tell you, this is the direction you go because I'm giving mm-hmm. you my money. So you're going to do mm-hmm. as per I said. Mm-hmm. Where are our resources? Where are we putting our resources? Well, that uh, dialogue, that's uh, very, very interesting, uh, Sophie. Uh, that's why I'm saying we need to invest more in defining our own uh, developmental agenda and how it will be it will be funded. Yes, we have support from institutions like the the Africa Development Bank, but you find that the major also funders in that are from the mm. Western world. Of course. See, and uh, but uh, we've also noted that China has uh, taken a leading role in terms of supporting infrastructure under its uh, initiative, the Belt and Road uh, Initiative. They helped us to fund the, the uh, 750 uh, megawatt power plant, the Kafue Lower Gorge, uh, which uh, the last uh, turbines were just being you know, commissioned recently. And that is the power plant which has now changed Zambia's energy fortunes and it has put Zambia in energy surplus by at least 1,000 megawatts after it has come online based on the peak, peak demand. The funding for that came from China Exim Bank and they have also supported the other, other funds as, you know, as well from the, from the Far East. So we need to work with the international organizations that understand and appreciate our unique challenges that we are in to help us unlock these resources. Yes, the world will shift to a new platform, but we still have a considerable um, a long time before we can completely, completely detach ourselves from some of these uh, uh, technologies. It is a pity that we have found ourselves at the in a war where we cannot you know save ourselves where we where we have to to be told where to go and and do we need mm. to start changing this uh, kind of narrative and to do this we need to unite as as a single as a single voice and put our foot down that it is not possible to do away with thermal energy not even in the next 10 years and, and when you're talking of, when you're talking about international partners who understands and appreciates. Africa has to ensure that it works with international partners who also respect human rights. Because China has been, there have been a lot of complaints, and even in Zambia, there have been a lot of complaints in many African countries, basically about China and the contracts that were not favoring African governments and the takeovers of key infrastructures, and also the human rights abuse by Chinese companies. Well, that's, I think, a different kettle of fish. Uh, of course, mm. we want to you know um, uh, human rights uh, compliance issues and uh, if um, companies are not uh, being compliant, it is because uh, the labor laws are weak. And uh, but uh, what I've also noted in Zambia, we have had to pass new laws on uh, the, the the labor, the employment code, and so on and so forth, which have really strengthened the the position of employees uh, in the in the in the marketplace. So uh, wherever you see maybe abuses or what. 
it could be weaknesses in the legislative you know structure of that particular country but uh, engagements at that level also have to be escalated yes uh, you know some of eastern countries um, you know <laughs> had uh, certain challenges around them from uh, certain human rights compliance issues but uh, they have also been able to be engaged on different you know diplomatic uh, engagements to highlight uh, our concerns that uh, please even you know, as much as we need this we also want you know the dignity of our people to be respected and uh, so I've from a personal point of view I think uh, there has been an improvement the right. abuses that we were hearing of of 10 years ago 20 years ago or so they have become quite quite less perhaps even you would bear with me that what was being reported 10 years ago concerning some of these countries from the far east uh, as is significantly reduced uh, on the on the african continent and i want to actually ask about africa union because then again you mentioned them and there's a lot of effort they're putting but sometimes I see Africa Union coming up with strategies, coming up with policies and policies and policies, and the whole thing of like implementation of these policies by countries for them to really be, you know, something tangible and feasible. Is Africa Union steering us to the right direction in the fact that Africa itself cannot find its highest office and land? How is it that you know even Africa Union can push the individual African countries to? you know, really implement these policies that they are actually, you know, putting up every single day. Yeah, um, those imperfections are there. and uh, But uh, also what maybe we need to acknowledge is that uh, at least uh, we have got uh, a long-term vision, the Africa we want uh, by 2063. So we have got uh, an agenda which serves to inform, guide, and mentor how development on the African continent is supposed to be uh, to be executed. That's uh, the starting point, and there is a sign-off there. When you look at the strategic pillars and infrastructure and energy, uh, you know, healthy security, food security, uh, industrialization. When you look at that, at least see those strategies. They are they are, they are very good. So it is now the implementation and the funding component of it. That's where maybe uh, issues are. We are facing them, but also uh, harmonizing the the regional, the you know the tariff structures, uh, the the customs duties at the regional level. For instance, uh, we have got uh, five power pools. In, on the African continent. We've got the Southern African Power Pool, mm. the Eastern Community Power Pool, the Central African Power Pool, the West African Power Pool, and the North Africa Power Pool. So when you look into each of these power pools, what we're now calling for is the countries that are in there, can you harmonize the regulatory framework? Because each country has got its own regulatory framework, and some countries have made significant headways whereas others are still lagging behind in terms of the regulatory framework. So if we bring individual countries now to almost a similar you know, regulatory framework, then it will be very, very easy now to integrate region to region. For instance, mm -hmm. the Southern African Power Pool 
uh, is virtually almost connected to to the East African purple. And when those interconnectors with Tanzania are executed, then the Southern African purple would enter into the Eastern African purple. So that is the, when we begin to see things like that, then we are moving in the in the right direction. Until we interconnect Africa, uh, it will be very difficult to uh, to spur the development, uh, not just from an energy point of view, but also other infrastructure like the road network, the pipelines, uh, in order to improve intra-Africa trade. Intra-Africa trade is very, very low. That's why so much money leaves the African continent. But once we begin to improve intra-Africa trade, we could mm. begin to see a lot of money remaining on the African continent to support other other developmental agenda. And also, Sophie, the, the way I'm emphasizing on, on regional integration is mm. that uh, once you have power pools that are interconnected, you might find that if Kenya wants to build its own $5 billion power plant, now it will think twice because just across DRC, there is so much excess power in the network so really, do you want to spend five billion, or you can just get from the market what is what is available? So instead of investing that kind of money, you can take it to other other needy areas. So we've noted that the way we are fragmented, it's also making uh, the cost of doing business uh, very high and mm. delaying our developmental project. Because when you look at each country trying to build so much. Uh, its own energy infrastructure, this one so much, and we are worried that uh, sometime later on, some of these projects might become white elephants, because mm. who is going to, to use it? So can we operate and harness the arbitrage which is lying in specific countries, so that uh, we don't have all of those to be going into, into, you know, into things that we can get from, from the neighbor across some countries have got arbitrage around hydro and the others around the, you know different types of energy and when you are in a single market you now have to think twice should i be spending my 2 billion united states dollars in putting my own power when i can get it from uganda when i can get it from ethiopia you know ethiopia this uh, the grand ethiopian renaissance dam which is 6000 megawatts which i've started now to be commissioning partially that will be a game changer to the East African uh, corridor. Should do, I also be doing this when I can get from that? So uh, resource allocation and diversion to things that are not supposed to be happening will also uh, now become a, a thing of the past when we integrate properly. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Chikwanda. We have to end this conversation. Uh, but before we go, maybe your final word. Well, we have a developmental path as an African continent. What is lacking is the acceleration of the implementation of those strategies. There is a need to harmonize quickly as a matter of agency the national regulatory frameworks at regional levels so that we can integrate the regional bodies agently. There is also need to improve resource mobilization from our own continent instead of constantly going uh, elsewhere. There is also need to be patient with the African continent with regard to other forms of energy. 
in any case, more than 65% of sub-Saharan Africa depends on fossil fuel. And we cannot take away fossil fuel, not even in the next 10 years, not even in the next 20 years. It's not possible. It's a long haul. We appreciate and we understand that renewable energy is the way to go, but we need to come up with proper exit plans that do not plunge our people into abject, abject poverty because 65% of people depending on thermal energy, uh, which, you know, thermal energy is coal, is firewood, is charcoal, it is incredibly high. So to manage the transition, we need strategies that are effective, strategies that are going to cater and talk to the 65% households that are not connected to clean energy. Thank you so much, Justin Chikwanda, for joining us today. Thank you so much, uh, uh, Sophie, and uh, have a good day ahead of you. You too, thank you. And that is all we had for you today. Remember, you can subscribe or follow us. Africa Climate Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, Podcast Addict, and every other channel you will listen to your other podcasts. Also, do not forget that we have a new website, www.africaclimatenews.com. Please check it out. And while there, please do not forget to subscribe to our newsletter. Thank you so much for listening. I will see you again soon. Kaheri for now. My name is Sophie Mbogwa. Africa Climate Podcast.